Welcome to the Argumentative Indians podcast. Argumentative Indians is India's first non-partisan platform dedicated to sharing of bold ideas and intelligent insights through in-depth discussions with thought leaders in politics, society and culture. The next 3 episodes will be part of a series where we will discuss about Israel beyond the Indian perception. Today we bring to you an in-depth discussion with Dr. Kinvraj Jangir where we will discuss the making of the Jewish and democratic state of Israel. Hello and welcome to Argumentative Indians, a platform to grow your knowledge, build your network and formulate your own opinions. My name is Yajur Arora and I'm delighted to host the first session of this groundbreaking series Israel beyond the Indian perception. In today's session Dr. Kinra Jangi will take us through the making of Israel and explain to us the paradox it presents by being simultaneously a religious state and a democracy. Dr. Kinra Jangid is associate professor and director at the Center for Israel Studies, OP Jindal Global University, Delhi. He's leading new research and comparing India and Israel through their ideas of nation building and statehood. Dr. Jangid, thank you for joining us. We're ready to dive deep into Israel. Uh, thank you very much, Yazur, and uh, I thank uh, the people who are uh, joining this conversation. uh it's a great platform uh, that you are leading argumentative indians and i must congratulate you mank uh, for creating a very very free and accessible conversation for people who do, might not be in the universities but might have interest in in rational politics might have interest in many of the major conflicts and uh, developments of the world politics uh my sim you know my humble contribution to your effort is to bring uh the story of israel to the indian audience we might have somebody from uh, other lands uh but israel has uh, uh come around a big uh turning point in the israeli in the indian diplomacy and this is actually the best year to in a way engage with israel in a more open and more uh, academic engagement israel has uh, completed 30 years of its bilateral relations with india indian foreign policy is is really vast and there are many events and actors and ideas that have shaped india's approach to the world israel is a very significant part of that uh, india did not have relations with israel from 1948 till 1992 and i think that we will cover in the third part of this conversation uh india does have now very robust uh, strategic relationship with the uh, state of israel that began from 1992 and i think this is this is a really really uh, in a way appropriate moment uh, to open up conversations uh, about israel so i'm going to speak and i i really uh, let you stop me at the end of 25 minutes i just don't uh, wish to make a long uh, monologue 
I would present a few things about the making of the State of Israel. How did it really come about in 1948? Uh, what was its nationalism? What was its territorial claim? And what did it really free itself from? Were the British ruling the palace, you know, the, the Israeli or the Jewish people? And uh, that story will take us to the beginning of the 20th century. So it's sort of, uh, you know, going through, let's say, Indian narrative of Indian uh, nationalism and making of the Republic of India. Uh, so let's begin with a map. Now, one of the very interesting things about Israel is that it doesn't have an official map yet. Uh, it's a one country that's member of the United Nations and has not really uh, submitted uh, its territorial uh, uh, in a way, limits or its territorial claims. And that makes it very, very complex problems in IAR because you don't have a state without a territorially defined space uh, on, the, on the earth. Uh, we'll talk about the reasons why Israel uh, doesn't have a territorially defined map yet when we talk about the Israeli and the Palestinian and the Israeli and the Arab conflict in the second part of the conversation. But today I'm just drawing attention to this map, which is actually a map from 1947. Uh, this was originally the United Nations partition plan. And this partition plan gave an idea of what should be a Jewish state, a state for the Jews. Uh, now, before we, in a way, I, I just want to, uh, in a way, invite uh, our listeners uh, to think about what, what, what all they imagine when they think about Israel or what all they understand uh, about Israel and its identity in, in the Indian context. So one, the very first one is that it's a Jewish state. Uh, it's a, it can mean two things. It's a, it's a state for the Jews and it's a Jewish state by its you know, uh, laws, by its uh, state and its institutions. Second, it's a settler and a colonial state. Now, it's a politically very charged, uh, in a way, identity. What does it mean? It means that the Jews did not belong to uh, this part of the world, and they came from all over Europe or from many parts of the world, and they settled here uh, during the uh, 19th century and in the earlier uh, 20th century. The third image that many Indians uh, might be familiar with, uh, which is that it's a small state and it is really a very, very small state. Uh, one can do all of Israel from north to south and east to west in a day and uh, a car. So it's a small state and yet uh, aggressive in a way uh, national security is defined in international relations. It's militarily very capable. It has one of the most uh, sophisticated intelligence uh, systems in the world. And it really does dominate uh, the sophisticated means of warfare. So that's also a very important idea of Israel that many people might have. It is a military state. Uh, so Israel is a, a state that has compulsory military service, conscription, which means every person after the school of after high school 
uh, they, uh, they serve in the army. Uh, so usually people move after 12th in India to colleges. Uh, and most young Israelis move to the army for three years. Many might imagine Israel also a Mossad state, uh, a deeply, deeply uh, anyway, surveillance state uh, where intelligence plays overwhelming role. You know, in the context of Pegasus, I think that image has been reinforced in India uh, for a you know for a significant uh, debate. Uh, the another image in the 21st century of Israel is also that it's a startup nation. It's true. Uh, in the last 20 to 30 years, after the 90s, with the spread of knowledge and internet and information technology, Israel has dominated the world of startup nation. Uh, innovation and entrepreneurship are two very, very prime values uh, among the people as well as in the uh, state uh, agencies. So let's. If, if, we, if we put all of those images together, then we might be able to then uh, go back to the past and say, okay, how did each of this image come around? How did Israel become a startup nation? How did Israel really achieve a democratic yet a Jewish state? So to begin with, uh, the key word is Zionism. Uh, it's a word that, that's actually Israeli nationalism. The word Zionism comes from the uh, Zion, uh, which is a, an Hebrew word for a mountain in Jerusalem. Uh, so in the beginning of the uh, 19, in the end of the 19th century, when the Jews in a way needed to figure out their space in the political and nationalist movement of the Europe, they wanted to uh, think that Jerusalem uh, is their home. So Zionism became a very, very uh, powerful expression for the Jewish people who were scattered all over the world to, to yearn and to come back to this land. So Zionism is actually uh, a, a nationalism that helped the Jewish people have a state of their own in 1948. It's a nationalism that arose in European uh, Jewish communities. And there were particular moments in European history, like we have 18th and 19th century when Germany becomes German, French speaking people become French. So there's a very linguistic and a cultural uh, idea uh, that in political science, we call one people, one nation theory. If, if a group of people can define themselves as one people, they are legit then they are entitled to have their own sovereign autonomous state. So in the, in the political and the social movements of Europe, Jews felt that they don't have actually uh, uh, identity with the European societies, primarily Christian. And when they felt excluded, they needed to figure out what is their identity. So their nationalism emerged in the European age of nationalisms. The second aspect to Zionism was the, the very historical experience of the Jewish people in European societies, as well as in the Middle Eastern societies. It's an expression called anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is, is uh, you know, praise for any prejudice, any bias or hatred towards the Jews. And Jews did suffer that for a very long time in Europe, 
as well as in the Middle East, by the way. I mean, it's usually a, a thing uh, often said that Middle East or West Asia did not have uh, the, the burden of anti-Semitism and Jews uh, were actually, uh, you know, persecuted and discriminated by the European Christian societies. That's not true. Uh, Jews in Baghdad, Jews in Yemen or Jews in Algeria also had to go through anti-Semitism. So when they went through this historical experience of uh, exclusion and persecution, they realized that the only way they can secure themselves and uh, be who they are, if they have their own state. So it's a big factor in making of Zionism. Like India's nationalism is primarily driven by the reality of colonialism, that the foreign rule uh, mobilized all Indians, Muslims, Hindus, to come together and fight the enemy. And that's how Indian nationalism was uh, for more than 150 years. So the Jewish nationalism also came from this very, very powerful and critical historical reality of anti-Semitism. The third thing that defined uh, the the idea or gave legitimacy to the idea of the state of Israel was the event called Holocaust. Now this happens towards the, uh, you know, I just want to uh, show a picture. Uh, Holocaust is, you know, usually referred in India as a minor footnote in the history textbooks when, when German Nazi party nationalism is, um, is uh, you know discussed, or when we talk about uh, the world between World War One and World War Two, so the the German Nazi Party and Hitler's rule in Europe, uh, in Germany, uh, is in a way context uh, to Holocaust for people, you know, in India. I mean, when I studied in a government school in Rajasthan, I had no idea. Uh, what Holocaust is, uh, and what uh, you know, who are the Jewish people? I mean, it's it's a remarkable uh, knowledge gap. I remember when I came to Jawaharlal Nehru University in the year two thousand four to do masters in international relations. In my masters degree, in the second year of my masters degree, I came to know who the Jews are and uh, what happened in the in the. Uh, in between the two world wars to the people of the Jewish faith. So, you know, six lakh people uh, were killed uh, by German racial, uh, ultra-nationalist and violent uh, party of Hitler. Now, this was something that was very, very uh, uh, big event in terms of you know, the amount of violence or the, or the design of the violence, that people were targeted, people were picked up, and they were starved in the concentration camps. It changed the mind of the world uh, about the Jews, meaning the world of diplomacy and international community saw Jewish people dying, and the only way they could really get to some kind of a survival is if they can have their own state because they were suffering anti-Semitism before, and now the anti-Semitism has led to a very, very 
uh, radical event uh, called Holocaust. So I think these are the three things. Uh, uh, let's go back to Zionism. I mean, there can be there are more dimensions to Zionism, and I think we'll talk about it in the next part when we talk about the conflict with the Palestinians and the, and the issue of the land there. But in terms of the Israeli story, this is how Israeli story runs, uh, that there's a Zionism, and Zionism is, is driven by these three major ideas. Now, in the light of what was happening to the Jews in the beginning of the 20th century, you have a remarkable leader like David Ben-Gurion. Now, he came from Poland. He was one of those European Jews who came in the 1920s to this part of the world. Uh, and he uh, is almost like Nehru of Israel. He was the founding prime minister from 1948 to 1960s. He was, he was the prime minister. And uh, he was somebody who led the Zionist movement uh, in the 1920s and 30s and 40s. Uh, what was the uniqueness of this uh, uh, nationalism. We understood the historical factors behind it, but there's something more to it now. So unlike other nationalisms like India's nationalism, where one had to free the land and, and, and make the foreign rule uh, run away, in the case of the, uh, the Jews and their nationalism, they needed to actually get to the land. So the land of Palestine was, you know, uh, flourished and very prosperous uh, place for, for the Arabs and the Palestinians. And Jews had to, in a way, come back. There were many other uh, you know, Jewish communities in Palestine before Zionism. It's also something that needs to be underlined that Jews lived in this part of the world uh, before the Zionist uh, movement came around. But anyway, now the bigger challenge in the beginning of the 20th century was to bring the Jews from different parts of Europe uh, who were getting uh, in a way killed. Uh, so the land was supposed to be in a way uh, uh, settled by the Jews who don't have a land of their own. And uh, it wasn't a liberation movement as in other cases of nationalisms. Uh, the second thing that Zionist diplomacy, in a way, you know, defined its uh, uh, approach was a great power politics. Now, before 1916, before 1915, uh, Palestine was, was under the Ottoman Empire. And Ottoman Empire ruled this part of the world for more than 400 years. But because of the World War I and the mess with the British Empire, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. And when the Ottoman Empire collapsed, there were two empires that got entry into the Middle East, uh, Great Britain and French. These two empires divided roughly the land that's, you know, Iraq, uh, Palestine, Syria, Lebanon, between themselves. And under the British and the, and the French arrangement, uh, Iraq and Palestine were supposed to be under the British control. So British officially controlled this part of the land from, you know, let's say roughly 1915, 16 onwards till 1947. So the very first thing that the Zionists thought, let's, let's talk to the British and figure out a right for the Jews to come in. Uh, 
And it in a way created a huge amount of uh, gap between other nationalisms and Zionism. So one of the things that divided Indian nationalism and Zionism was that India was fighting the British and Zionist uh, leaders like David Ben-Gurion and Chaim Weizmann were thinking of taking the help of the British. So this great power politics to the Israeli state is is something very historically, uh, in a way, defined by the circumstances of the land. So the gathering of the Jews returned to the Holy Land were their slogans. This is how they, they in a way, uh, uh, invited the Jews to come in. And diaspora, the Jews who didn't come, Jews in America didn't come to Israel in the 1950s or 60s, uh, contributed to the state uh, from far. Now, there's a one major event in terms of making of Israel that happens in 1917. The picture that that, uh, is visible is uh, a British Foreign Secretary, Arthur Balfour. And uh, when he was the British Foreign Secretary, he got convinced by the Zionist leaders uh, that Jews have a legit claim to to this part of the land and they should be helped by the British Empire to come into this uh, land. And in 1917, uh, officially, the British Empire issued a letter. Now, it's a very famous letter, by the way. It's a letter that is deeply problematic for you know, Arab and the Palestinian uh, position. But this letter, in a way, gave international sanctity, uh, gave international support, and gave a very powerful uh, push for the Jewish claim and the Jewish return to the land of Palestine. Uh, it's a very short letter, but in this letter, the you know, Jews were given the right of homeland in, in this part of the uh, world, and they, they were recognized as you know, ancestral people of this land. Okay. Now, when this document came out, uh, you know, leaders like Gandhi and Nehru uh, were very critical of the Israeli uh, you know, Zionist diplomacy. They believe that this letter completely excluded the political rights and the national rights of the Palestinian and the Arab people. We'll talk about those dimensions later, but I just want to mention that one of the important documents. Uh, Can I just interrupt you for one second? Sorry. Just, I'm very curious, what were the grounds for this claim uh, that this land, the Palestinian land, was should have been should be given to Jews or a Jewish state should be established in that very land. You, you mentioned about the ancestral claim. Just just wondering if you could shed some light on what made the British sympathetic to and what was the grounds for that claim. That's fascinating to ask. You know, the British when the Zionist leaders said you know Jews don't have a land of their own and they are you know getting. Uh, persecuted, there's anti-Semitism, and uh, all of nationalist Europe is not going to treat them equally. So they should have their own, you know, they are one people, and they should have their own land. So the British at that time owned the world. You know, what did they offer to them? They said, take Uganda. It's a fascinating historical fact, by the way. So the British said, take Uganda. We have a lot of land in Africa, and we can give you the land. And the Zionist leader said, hmm, yeah, we need the land, but we don't need any piece of land. 
we need our holy land so it's a very you know there is a popular song in israel 10 years back where a music band sang a song because there is a lot of conflict and all the time mess around the land they said what if our leaders took uganda offer and took us there we might have been better so british really treated this as a territorial problem they they believe that you could go to uganda and have a state there now the zionist leaders and there was a fascinating conversation to uh, with kain weisman and and you know this uganda offer where they said that well jews were born here jerusalem is their birthplace uh, they lived here before romans expelled them in the 7th century and uh, their uh, religious uh, Place of worship is still in Jerusalem. Maybe just the remain of it, the wall, the Wailing Wall. It's the wall of a you know Jewish temple. So they said that our ancestors lived once upon a time there. Our religion today, even today, is in a way sourced from this part of the land. So it was purely a religious and an ancestral uh, uh, claim. and that claim is actually uh, legit in many uh, even in the critical corridors uh, of israel i'll give you an example of gandhi so gandhi said very famously in 1938 that you know palestine belongs to the uh, to the arabs as england belongs to the english and france belongs to the french and then he was criticized that you know you you cannot exclude the claim of the jews and their ancestral uh, you know people who who were in this part of the world after some years and holocaust happened gandhi said arabs have a claim but jews have a prior claim to this land so it's you know it got settled uh, very quickly with the british that uganda won't work that jews will go back to the holy land not any piece of land so what defines the idea of the land is you know the holiness the, the religiosity of it or the origin of it uh let's move to now okay uh so so the context of the british declaration in 1917 is important because it sets the political footing of the zionist movement and they get british uh, help to to get in but the british help was strategic the british did not want a mess in the middle east where they were trying to control it for years so in 1939 close to the you know second world war winston churchill put a white paper he put a full stop no jew is allowed to return or come into uh, palestine and this is when zionism actually turned against the british because they realized that the british sympathy or the imperial decree is no more now supporting their cause because british actually got interest in uh retaining this land rather than allowing jews to come in and british had a problem because when they allowed the jews in they didn't really realize that the arab people and the palestinian people primarily are not going to really lay you know quiet i mean they will they will they will protest they will agitate and they did so there is a civil war from 1936-39 and after that civil war british decided it's much better to retain the empire than create this help this creation of the jewish state in palestine so zionism in a way 
got the help, but then later got dropped. And then it fought the British in, 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 you know, uh, in many ways uh, in the last years of the empire. Now, I, I want to just show that in this Zionist movement and its struggle with, 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 the, with the making of, of you know, bringing in the Jews, there were other Jewish communities and you, know, you see the two posters from London and America. These are pre-state you know, pre posters. You have one 1917 poster from New York. Uh, then you have another one from British Army 1918, uh, which invited uh, all kinds of Jewish organizations, Jewish communities to support the idea. And as you look at their slogans, it was to free Palestine. Now, freeing Palestine meant a primarily the British control, but it also could mean freeing it from the uh, Palestinian and the Arab uh, uh, population. So it was a very, very, uh, in a way, a critical moment in the Middle East where the incoming of the Jews uh, threatened the well-being of the uh, Palestinian people. Now, it's an important part of this conversation that in, and I think we will have more time in the next part, but I just want to highlight this, that one of the things that the Palestinian people fought uh, was because of the British Empire. They believed the 1917 document was extremely unfair. And in the absence of any bilateral conversation, Palestinian and the uh, Jewish people, uh, Palestinian people felt that their land is being completely given uh, to a one group of people. Okay, let's come to the, the making of the state. So in 1947, we, I showed you the map where uh, United Nations partition plan gave an idea of a two-state solution. So what happened in this Zionist struggle with the British or the Zionist struggle with the, you know, the Palestinian people, uh, the British in 1938 said, well, let's divide the land. Uh, so there was a Peel Commission and they wanted to divide it for the Jews and the Arabs. And this idea of the territorial division is something very familiar to us in South Asia, right? That when there are two groups of people deeply divided on the religious or the cultural identities, uh, usual idea or the predictable rational mode of resolution is to divide the land between the two, if the two have legit claims. When the two had legit claims, the British said, let's divide it. But the Palestinian people did not want to accept anything that was done by the British Empire. It was completely unfair to them. So they rejected it. Peel Commission couldn't really resolve the conflict. And then due to the World War II and the success of the Indian nationalism and the establishment of the Indian uh, state, the British really got uh, you know, out of their power. When they lost their imperial uh, outreach and the leverage, they wanted to get out of the Middle East. So in 1947, they had this very uh, you know, grandeur of a walk out of the Middle East and leaving this conflict that they tried to resolve by dividing the land in the hands of the United Nations. So in a way, when the United Nations was conceived, it was offered the most complex problem which was the problem of the Palestinian people and the Jewish people over a one piece of land. United Nations partition plan 
gave almost 50-50 land to the uh, Palestinians and the uh, Jewish people. UN partition plan was debated internationally. It was passed uh, in, a, in a grand international assembly of the nation states. India at that time voted against the partition plan, by the way. India's position was that uh, this partition should not happen. Rather, it should be a federal state, a federal state that can have two nationalist groups within it. They can be Jewish people, they can be Palestinian people, and they can be in a federal form. Now, it's something weird or something strange to receive from the Indian experience because India just chose to uh, have partition for itself. Anyway, uh, the partition plan was open debate and the resolution was passed by the United Nations. And in 1948, May 1948, Israel was declared by David Ben-Gurion. Uh, I just want to show you his picture. Uh, so David Ben-Gurion declared the state in May 1948. And there was a war. So Israel was created in the middle of a war. It's called 1948 war. It's the first Israel-Arab war. There was a civil war also in 1936. But in 1948, you have a major war. A war that goes on for more than 12 months. A war begins between the Jews and the Palestinians in 1947, November 1947, when the partition plan is passed, when Jews you know, feel uh, vindicated, when Jews feel internationally supported, uh, and Palestinians uh, think that the UN partition plan was just an imperial design uh, offered with, you know, some kind of a uh, uh, agency which is not fair to them. So for the Palestinian and the Arab states, UN partition plan was still an imperial act because United Nations was you know, dominated by the European powers. Jewish people, you know, David Ben-Gurion accepted the partition plan. And the partition plans were very interesting. So they gave the 50-50 land to both. And they said Jerusalem will not be given to either of them. Jerusalem will be an internationally governed city. It's a city that has importance for three religions. And keeping in mind uh, you know, the small size of it, it cannot be divided. So it would be open to all in, in let's say, as best uh, as an equal number. Uh, but this partition plan was rejected by the Arabs and the Palestinian uh, you know, leaders at that time. Uh, just some years back, uh, Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas, who's right now the head of Fatah, said that the rejection of the 1947 partition plan was the greatest blunder uh, on the part of the uh, you know, leaders from the Arab world and the Palestinian people at that time. Now the Palestinian people accept the partition plan of 1947, but that plan is no more relevant in the current conflict and the uh, context in which the land is in a way settled or occupied or uh, in a way inhabited. So I think that part we will discuss uh, in, the, in the second conversation. I just want to come back to the image here. So what happens in May 1948? In the middle of the war, Israel is declared. And the moment it is declared, uh, America recognizes Israel. And Soviet Union uh, follows uh, 
the American, uh, in a way, sentiment. It's very interesting. Uh, 1948 is a world deeply divided between Cold War politics, you know, the US and Soviet Union. But Soviet Union extends the recognition and support uh, for the idea of the state of Israel. And India chose not to recognize it for the, another two years. So India's recognition comes only in September 1950. Uh, but the state of Israel is established in May 1948. And as you can see the poster on, 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 the, on the screen, there's this Jewish National Fund. It's you know Jewish National Agency. Uh, which in a way claimed that a nation is reborn on its ancestral soil. So a great part of the Israeli story, that's how Israelis believe their story. Their story is of redemption. Their story is of ending the life in exile. Their story is of uh, coming out of anti-Semitism. Their story is a great heroic survival of the community even after the Holocaust. Their story is making a state out of scratch. Their story is a story of a struggle and fear and a notion that the whole world can, can turn against uh, you know, uh, Jewish people as it did in, in, in the age of anti-Semitism or in the age of Holocaust. So I think what one needs to do uh, is to listen to this story as, you know, uh, as it is uh, perceived, self-perceived by the state of Israel, and then engage with the key events or the actors or the ideas uh, that really made Israel a very, very important uh, member of the nation states in 1948. Uh, I think uh, uh, when we listen to this history from the Israeli perspective or the way self-perception of the Israeli state one doesn't have to agree to all of it, but I suppose one has to understand the historical conditions of the Jewish people uh, and their existential uh, circumstances in Europe in the uh, late part of the uh, 19th century. You see, German nationalism and Nazi party is known at least for killing the Jews. But the greater amount of killings happened even before the German nationalism in the Nazi party. It happened in actually Russia. Uh, the Russian, Russian Tsar uh, was the first one who put the ghettos in uh, Russia in 18th century. So the very first Jews who came to this part of the world came from Russia, uh, running away from the programs and the ghettos. Uh, Russia was was very, very, very hostile place for the Jews. And uh, so, in a way, the you know all of Europe was was an existential uh, fear uh, for the Jews, and I think the age of nationalism gave them an idea that uh, they can have their own land, they can have their own state. There's a one person that I didn't mention much, but I will I will tell you now. His name is Theodor Herzl. Uh, Theodor Herzl looks like uh, this. He was born in Austria. Uh, he grew up, you know. He lived in, he was a journalist and uh, he was a very cosmopolitan, European, enlightened individual. And uh, he never believed in religion. Uh, but when he faced anti-Semitism and he covered a lot of anti-Semitism actually in France, there was a very famous affair called Dreyfus Affair. 
And when he saw that the Jews cannot actually live with respect and equality anywhere, uh, he became the intellectual uh, father of the idea of the Jewish state. So he wrote this very famous pamphlet in 1896 called The Jewish State. And he's considered the uh, Gandhi of Israel. Uh, I mean, Gandhi uh, of Israel in the sense that he gave the idea of the state. And he was a very cosmopolitan person. He could have taken even Argentina, by the way. Uh, that's how he wrote in the pamphlet that we just need a land where Jews can really live independently and they can live without the fear of uh, the other. Anyway, I, I suppose I, you know, I can add many more things here, but I should not. Uh, what I would like to do is to open up to your questions uh, and the questions that will come to you know, us from others. Uh, so let me shut down the screen. And I'm very happy to now have open Actually, conversation. With thank you, Dr. Jangit. Just before you shut it down, can you go back to the slides? I just wanted to point something very quickly for clarification. Yeah. Uh, so if you go to the Holocaust slide. Um, is, this, is this number correct, the 600,000? Or was it more like 6 million Jews? No, yeah, sorry. This number is, yeah, six million. I'm, I'm yes, very, sorry. Just wanted to, just, no, that's fine. I just wanted to correct it for everyone. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, it's yeah, yeah. 10 times this number. Um, and um, so th thanks a lot for this. I, this, was a very, this was very interesting. There were a lot of things that came up here that I had absolutely no idea. The fact that you mentioned that Russia was even more inhospitable a place for Jews um, before the Holocaust. Uh, that is something that we generally don't talk, we're not that aware. We tend to sort of think of more of Western Europe as being the hostile place for Jews. Also, the fact that you mentioned um, that in the Arab world also there was anti-Semitism in the pre-modern Arab world. I think that's generally not very well known. I myself always believed that the Middle East was a much more um, cosmopolitan place and much more um, accommodative of Jews before the making of Israel. And it was just the fact that the Israel state was carved out of the Arab lands, which made Arabs host some of the Arabs hostile towards uh, the Jews. So that, that was actually a bit of a revelation for me. Um, before we start taking questions, I wanted to... Um, ask you something which is going on right now uh, as we talk about this. So it, just uh, recently, I think this week, Jimmy Carr, a very famous comedian, made a joke about the Holocaust where he said that everyone keeps talking about the 6 million Jews who were slaughtered, but nobody talks about the thousands of uh, Roma and the gypsies and uh, travelers who were also killed in the Holocaust, and and he made a he made a something that is being quite criticized is that was the positive side of the Holocaust. It was it was a, I think it was a joke which was trying to make a case that nobody still likes the gypsies and stuff. But just out of curiosity, you said that Holocaust was what gave birth to this Jewish nationalism that we need to have a land of our own. Did the same kind of national? Why did the same kind of nationalism not play out for other groups who were also the direct victims of the Holocaust, like the Roma and the Gypsies and others? Uh, 
Is it because the Jews had some conception of formally having a land of their own, which maybe the Roma did not? Listen, uh, it's sad uh, that other people went through maybe the same amount of violence and uh, maybe more. I mean, Armenian genocide in the Middle East uh, during the Ottoman Empire, you know, the Turks killed Armenian people in, in a number that we can't even have a knowledge of. So it's sad that other groups suffered, uh, you know, religious violence. So, you know, these are all religious, uh, cultural violence uh, because people were killed for their religion, people were killed for their culture. I personally think that Holocaust is not the one that gave the idea uh, to, the, to the state of Israel or the, or the birth to it. I think in 19th century, when the Europe was when, you know, going through the nationalism, people like Theodor Herzl, who defined the idea of a Jewish state, he was a cosmopolitan. He didn't, he, in, in that template, he said, you know, even Argentina is, 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 is better for us. So I think there is a long history of exclusion and anti-Semitism that the Jewish people went through. And nationalism gave them a very, very hard realization of it that it will never end because you see enlightenment and the rise of liberalism in Europe was also a great part of the change where everybody was treated equally. But that equality was a facade because it was just a political equality. Culturally and socially people were discriminated. And the, and the continuation of anti-Semitism is something that you know, Theodore Herzl wrote a lot about. Dreyfus affair, I'll just tell you a you know, a gist of it. French and the German had a battle. French lost. And after a commission of inquiry in that battle, they said the, the Jewish-French officer colluded with the German. So French lost because of this unpatriotic Jew. And they put him on a trial. And, and Theodore Herzl was a journalist from Vienna covering all of this mess. And I think it was, he writes this, that it was a great shattering moment for him because the French society, you know, after the French Revolution and the cosmopolitan Paris was so, so cruel to the Jewish people. Later they find out that actually there was a French, French soldier who colluded. So the, the, the Jew French was actually found innocent. And it in a way created a notion for the Jewish people that they will not have an equal space in this cosmopolitan enlightened renaissance of a Europe. That they will have to now find a one uh, peoplehood. And, and once they define uh, how they are one, which wasn't difficult when Jewish people were you know, of the Judaism faith and religion, not Christians, not Muslims. So they, they didn't have that difficulty. They had their Bible, but they did not have a land. They were all, you know, they were scattered all over the world. And I'll give you the example of uh, Iraq or uh, Tunisia or Algeria or Morocco. Uh, there was a practice that uh, it was legal to rob a Jew. It wasn't a crime during the Muslim rule. 
I mean, Muslim rulers. So uh, Jews were not supposed to have wealth. They were suspected of hoarding. So it was legit to just rob them any day that you think, oh, they have collected enough in last six months, so let's take it all now. So they did suffer anti-Semitism uh, in, in Middle East, by the way. And uh, when the state of Israel was created, uh, more than a million Jews of the uh, Arab origin came into Israel. Uh, so I think Holocaust is a very, I would say, a last event that made it internationally more conceivable for the others. But as far as the Jewish consciousness was concerned about nationalist groups, I think they were very clear that they need a nation of their own. And they knew it from the 19th century. Uh, so Holocaust is often, you know, uh, a, I would say can be a footnote event in the, in the larger scheme of the, the national consciousness among the Jewish people. Thank you. And um, you, so you, when you talk about the, they needed their promised um, land, was the allure of promised land there even before the Holocaust? Or was it the national Zionist movement that sort of took steam? Uh, that's when, because if it was just, first of all, I think what you talked about the Dreyfus affair where Jews being the minority had to prove they were the first ones to be doubted. I think that's pretty clear that when you are a minority in any land, any of you are seeing this in India, even today, the minority ethnic or linguistic or religious group has to constantly prove their loyalty to the nation. The, the onus is always on them to prove their loyalty. And they are the first ones to be targeted whenever something goes wrong. So that is well known. And I'm, I don't expect it to be different in historically in other parts of the world also. And it's it makes a lot of sense that because Jews were all minority in Europe and Middle East and everywhere, they would have thought that if we were to have a land where we would be in majority, we wouldn't have to suffer as much as we do right now. So that's clear. But then when we get to this point that after the Holocaust, they become they became even more determined to have their own land where they were in, in a majority. That Uganda could have, uh, I mean, it sounds a bit funny today to think about a Jewish state in, in Africa, but Uganda could have served their purpose. But now the religious angle comes in, the fact that they believed that this specific land, Palestine, was a land promised to them. It was their promised land. And so many of them, hundreds of thousands of them, devoted themselves to this cause of getting to the promised land and building a state. Did this kind of allure of the promised land exist among the Jewish communities before the Holocaust? Or was this part of the organized, I don't want to use the word propaganda, but the organized movement of Zionism which I guess tried to motivate more people by bringing in the religious element. And that's not surprising. I mean, even when in India, when we look at Gandhi's movement of freedom struggle, it had colors of spirituality. It had colors of religion. It was a Satyagraha movement to free ourselves, almost like a religious cause to free ourselves of the British domination. So it wouldn't surprise me if a same approach was used uh, by the Zionists. But is, is that... Let's start with Gandhi. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, 
it's an important plot how how the idea of the uh, land and the nationalism was uh, was associated to to religion gandhi used to use a word called ram rajya right that uh, he he's somebody who's going to you know, you know help uh, liberate the land but liberation is not his goal his goal is ram rajya getting freedom is a means to that i would say that you know societies are deeply religious and 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 people think of their history uh in religious terms so i think uh it you know the association to this land as their uh, ancestral land is historical when jews were here and jews were expelled by different different rulers in different times in the modern history it's you know the the roman empire 7th century kicked them from this part of the world in a massive significant uh, way that they couldn't come back sooner so jews do have this uh, you know jews had uh, this notion before the state that they have lived in exile their life is in exile perpetually and they carried these kind of uh, in a way historical collective memories uh, through their songs through even their you know ceremonies where there used to be a slogan called next year in jerusalem or there used to be a saying called if if i forget my jerusalem then my right hand uh, be you know fall even meaning there were deep rituals and and religious uh, connotations to it but i think that's something that we all have so i think the unity of the people uh, was around religion see this is think of it you have theodor herzl from vienna a cosmopolitan european white man and then you have a baghdadi jew from iraq what do they have common they have nothing in common they don't speak the language one is arabic by culture one is arabic by language one eats very different food than this european so the jews in a way had one identity which was that they were jewish people you see when people are scattered they have different languages they have different culture so i think the jewishness was their unifying force that's how they could unite and i think uganda would would not be a peaceful solution to this conflict also the problem is think of the african people in in uganda i'm sure there were african people there right and the british did not consider their political and national rights either by promising uganda to the jewish people they just thought maybe it's africa far away and we will manage it better so i think uganda was unfair and imperial arrogance so to speak and that wouldn't make the make the conflict go away either i think uh the the unity of the notions that it's a promised land uh by the religion and by the religious figures is something which is better of their faith and when they agreed to the jewish partition plan you know i'll give you this example also by the way when david ben gurion agreed that okay let's take the partition plan many zionist and jewish religious nationalists said no how can there be a jewish state without jerusalem they turned against ben gurion there was a deep 
See, Zionism was not one homogenous movement. It was deeply divided. And the religious Zionist or the religiously minded nationalist couldn't conceive a rational and a pragmatic solution that was given in 1947 by the United Nations Partition Plan. But Ben-Gurion was not a religious mind. He thought of this question as a nationalist territorial question. For him, religion is not the defining idea of the political life, and it should not be. He, he carried a secular uh, approach to the state. But he was firmly against uh, the, the idea of a, a land of Israel, you know, the greater Israel. He said, UN partition plan gives us the state of Israel, and that's legit, and that's acceptable. So I think Zionism went through many internal conflicts. There, there, there was this great leader called Zev Zabutensky, who, who said about greater Israel, a greater Israel that will have all, all, all West Bank and you know, uh, Jerusalem for it. Uh, but I think people like Theodore Herzl and David Ben-Gurion could actually present this as a national question. The Jewish question was presented as a national question to the international community. And that's how the British uh, thought of it in 1938 when they wanted to divide. They couldn't because they were not legit players. United Nations was considered more legit than the British. And UN said, let's partition because you both have legit claims here and you should both have a land for yourself. So it's a territorial understanding of the conflict. It's a national and political understanding of the conflict. Uh, religion didn't really uh, define their unity. I think religion was an idea that bound the people together, but their nationalism succeeded more on the modern language uh, of the 19th and 20th century. Thank you. That makes sense. And I do see parallels uh, even in the global Islamic movement, right? There are people of different, completely different cultures. They're feeling united by this idea that we share religion. They are clear up and that's generally used to motivate them as well. So, but we have, um, uh, we have somebody who has a question for you. Abhirami, please go ahead. Uh, yeah, thank you, uh, Professor. It was a great session. I learned quite a bit. Thank, thank you. you so much. Uh, my question is, I am um, of the under. I mean, I'm, I'm, I understand that the US was sort of put in charge of the two-state plan later on, but uh, but I want to understand the US's intentions in recognizing Israel as fast as it did. I, I, I'm assuming that the US did understand that the Arab world was not exactly okay with the creation of Israel. I mean, that is an understatement, uh, but. What was it that prompted U.S. to recognize it as fast as it did and sort of act the way it did? Well, the sentiment towards the Israeli state was, uh, uh, was I think, at that time, in 1948, was deeply in the background of the event of the Holocaust. Uh, when Britain uh, put a full stop in 1939, Churchill was a great imperialist and racist. By the way, Churchill also hated two things like Hitler. He hated the communists and he hated the Jews. There's something very common between Hitler and Churchill. Uh, he was so a racist he said, and an anti-Semitic. Yeah, so he, he said, 
stop the Jews. I mean, let them die wherever they die. And uh, when this happened, the, the Americans uh, opposed the British, saying that you cannot now stop for your imperial strategy. Uh, you need to let them come in. Uh, you know, people like Nehru, people like Gandhi believed, I mean, Nehru wanted uh, Jews to be rescued and brought to even India. Uh, so I think the recognition in 1948 is deeply in the background of this event. And I think, you know, see, national movements are very long phases of struggles. In, in every major part of it, you have a decisive event or, an, or a very decisive actor who can really turn the things. So I think because uh, the Jewish claim was in a way recognized by most part of the world that they were people of this land and they should have some share of it. Uh, and, and the Holocaust gave a push. I think this is what Truman personally did not want them to, to declare the state in the middle of a war. He thought that let the war end, there would be some kind of a, you know, clarity after it. Maybe two parties after fighting each other will sit together and say, okay, fine. You got this land. I got this land. Let's make peace. So I think U.S. didn't really uh, want it, but Israeli leaders like David Ben-Gurion and others said, we don't care who will recognize us and not recognize us. But we want to declare that this is our state and we are defining it in the basis of partition plan. Though when the war ended, uh, David Ben-Gurion also did not have the land only given by the partition plan. He had more land than it was given by the partition plan. But the logic at that time was, that Arabs and the Palestinians rejected it. So now we got it after the end of the war. So it's a, it's a mess that we will talk in the second part of the conversation. Uh, how did this whole conflict become so much uh, you know, critical for us? You know, as, as an outsider, it, it's very, very uh, confusing and complex reality. I mean, it's a conflict that's, uh, I think, the oldest in the 20th century, refuses to be resolved. Abhirami, does that answer your question? Yes, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to the other sessions as well. You can stay in the conversation. Let's. Let, Mira has a question. Mira, please go ahead. Hi, Kendraj. I hope you're doing well. Hi. Yeah. I'm and, well. It's good to see yeah. you. Thank yes. You. Yeah, and uh, wonderful session again. Uh, just like your articles as well. I learned a lot even today uh, from the session. So I read the Thank scroll you. article that you published yesterday, uh, I believe it was yesterday. Uh, so yeah, my question is with the with an Arab party being in the new coalition of the Bennett government, do you think this means a positive change uh, for in with regard to the Palestinian demands or the situation in the country? Uh, I mean, we know the discrimination that uh, the Muslims face uh, in the in Israel as well. So does this uh, can, does this mean any sort of positive change to uh, in this regard? Thank you. So good to see you, and thank you for for uh, you know participating. So Mansoor Abbas, who who is an Arab Palestinian, but he's an Israeli by citizenship. I mean, Israel has so Israel has nine million people. And around 20% of that population are non-Jews. They are primarily Arabs. Uh, they can be Christians, Arabs. They can be Muslim Arabs. 
Uh, it's also important in India to tell that there are Christians who are Arabs because sometimes, you know, all the Arabs are dubbed as Muslims. Uh, so the, you know, cities like Bethlehem, Jerusalem has significant population uh, of Arab Christians. So the Arabs, uh, Christians or Arab Muslims don't enjoy the same amount of rights and, uh, you know, many, many feel discriminated by the state or the majority. And they have been struggling uh, a lot in a, in a democratically given the political system. Mansur Abbas became a very radical Arab leader who for the first time said, I will fight from within the Jewish parties. So he, cha- he, he explicitly has the agenda of, let's say, Ahmed Tibi and others, you know, very popular known leaders of the Palestinian you know, Arab uh, communities here. Uh, he does, in a way, to me personally, make a more positive approach uh, to, to this struggle. I mean to say, rather than fighting with, uh, with the boycott of the political democratically given system, he says, I will have the faith on the democratic and the judicial system, and I will fight for the minority rights. So now the fight is, the, I, I don't think they'll get equal rights. What do, what? What is possible in, 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 in majority-minority struggles is that minority, minorities seek an autonomy with regard to their personal laws. They need a certain amount of protection and welfareism for their uh, growth and, and prosperity in the society, you know, kind of reservation kind of uh, systems. So I think that's what he's uh, struggling for. So right now he's getting funds to develop the Arab cities. So the Arab cities are less developed. There's a less garbage collection in the morning than the Jewish cities. So he says, let's begin with equal uh, care from the state rather than equal political rights. But it's a longest struggle. I think uh, it's something that that will go on for decades. And uh, Mansoor Abbas personally to me makes more positive. It in a way helps inclusion of the minority with the political system that it can be hostile parties, but you believe that the system is in your favor, if not the majority is in your favor. Yeah, does that answer your question? Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Ken You can stay in the conversation. Basu, please go ahead. Uh, hello. Uh, good afternoon, sir. Sir, Basu Sharma, this side, and I did my master's in University of Haifa. I was there for two years. Um, Wonderful. Yes, um, and I must say it's a really interesting country, Israel. And um, currently, I'm uh, um, associated with Moshe Dayan Center as a research associate, uh, and I'm uh, going to pursue my uh, PhD in GNU in national security. So, uh, so my question first is, uh, like, how do you see the um, current statements by Amnesty International uh, regarding Israel? Uh, uh, calling it as an apartheid state. Do you think uh, such statements are justified by the international organization of such stature? And um, if Israel is to counter such uh, narratives, how do you think they should go without being uh, too much harsh? Well, it's a very, very uh, relevant debate right now. I'm, I'm very happy you could you could bring that in aspect. So I would say occupation is something that's unavoidable uh, criticism of the state of Israel. And I think Israelis are not uh, unaware of it. I mean, you lived in Israel, you know that they're very politically candid. 
they can take criticism and uh, they they i think they they have to take this responsibility uh, i'm more now optimistic about the political change in israel where people like yair lapid speaks about less real politic and military power and more reconciliation and peace building so i see that after a decade and a half you have a very very openness in the government policies to engage with the other and i think israel is trying to now soften its uh, uh, stand with the with the palestinian leadership so mahmoud abbas was invited for a conversation by the defense minister in, in last month and they are trying to see if they can start collaboration they can you know work together and maybe that will make uh, the occupation uh, less brutal however it does still remain an occupation so i think one can debate the quality of the phrase like apartheid personally speaking i don't think that's a befitting uh, uh description of the reality as it is i mean i am not an expert on south africa's history but apartheid in south africa looked very different uh than what so i but but i personally think that occupation is is in itself a serious yeah. uh reality to be very very aware of and uh, so i personally think that there's a healthier change if we can say it's a healthier in terms of political change which might uh, really make it uh, uh, engage and the moment israel will engage with it i think the world will be uh, will give them time eventually yeah. see i mean it's it's the same debate that that's about zionism in 1975 there was a resolution in the united nations now resolutions in the united nations can come from very different political lobbying so there was a lobbying by the arab and other parties to bring a resolution that said zionism is racism in 1975 india agreed to that resolution yes now it's crazy to think how in 1975 india thought oh zionism is racism now if you go back to india's vote it was particularly in that third world anti israel rhetoric and indira gandhi was a champion of uh palestinian national movement to push american limits uh and so what i mean to say is that sometimes these are politically charged realities and one has to then academically speaking i mean if one has to look at ideologically and activist uh you know angle one can respect both the narratives but i think complexity of it is that uh, it 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 is circumstantial a moment in in terms of the conflict but one will eventually give the two to resolve their conflict no matter what the world calls it it won't help so so you brought up in india i just i was just curious earlier you had mentioned that nehru had wanted to bring the jewish victims of holocaust to india can you just share a little bit more on that and also why was india reluctant to recognize israel for two years after its formation okay that's that's a different conversation but okay when the holocaust was happening not only nehru there were many other uh, india was not independent india had many princely states and there there are actually great stories now published in indian media and abroad about how many 
you know, Indian uh, princely states uh, helped and rescued Jews from different parts of the Europe. They brought them for some years to live in India, and then they facilitated the, their journey to, to Israel. And Nehru, uh, when he was writing letters to his, you know, uh, uh, to his friends, he wanted Indian individual leaders or princely states to put as much resources as possible and bring more Jews uh, into India. Uh, he was deeply, deeply moved uh, by this event. However, when the state was declared, he found it uh, a, a politically uh, difficult situation. So there are two narratives to it. One, he looked at this whole problem also from an imperial perspective. For him, the British imperialism made this whole conflict far more complex. He believed that the Jews could have actually solved or Jews should have solved their troubles with the Palestinians, but the British gave Jews uh, a political support that annoyed the, British, you know, the Palestinians. The second aspect to it is that when Israel was declared, it was declared in the middle of a war and the Arab states were more historically, civilizationally and culturally in, in sync with the Indian leaders. So he wanted to have a sensitive approach to that issue uh, where he wanted to see that the Arab parties will, will try to make peace, there would be a peace and then he will not have to deal with the dilemma. So that's, I think, is, is the conversation he's having with Krishna Menon. And Vikki Krishna Menon tells him in 1950 that, listen, Israel is part of the UN and we look foolish to not recognize a country that's part of the UN. So no matter their conflict is going on, we cannot wait for the Arabs and the Israelis to now solve their conflict. So they recognize it. Then Nehru is pursued by, you know, lot many intellectuals like Albert Einstein to open the relationship and he almost does think of opening up in 1951-52, but then there's a national election, then there are budget issues, India is a poor country. And if you look at it strategically, Israel wasn't something that India could benefit from. So if you really look at it from pragmatic point of view of Nehru, India wasn't getting anything out of Israel. So he didn't in a way hurry up. And then there was this collusion between uh, India and Israel and the French and the British in 1956 uh, when they invaded Egypt. And that's when Nehru said firmly no to Israeli uh, offer. Uh, to so some extent. I, yeah, I would say it's it's combined. There is a, a strategic and a, and a pragmatic thought about the Arab support and solidarity for India uh, when it comes to Kashmir. Uh, and there was also this... Uh, you know, imperial, uh, anti-imperialism and anti-colonialism uh, point of view. So uh, the British so, you know, sympathy you just talked about earlier for the Zionist cause somehow tainted the, the Jewish cause for India because the British were sympathetic to it. See, these are unintended consequences. To me personally, it's true that Zionism wasn't really part of the Afro-Asian anti-national, anti-colonial movements. And there are many Israeli historians who have now criticized their leaders like Biru Ben-Gurion and others. They think that in the 1940s and 50s, when the Afro-Asian nations were fighting colonialism and were calling for third world solidarity, Zionism did not care about it. And that was a heavy price that the state of Israel paid 
after uh, 1948 on reaching out to the Asia and Africa. It's true, China also didn't recognize Israel. And Israel had a great time uh, uh, exclusion from the uh, Asian African community of the nations. So I think in their historically defined conditions, they did whatever they practi practically thought, but yeah, it did in a way create a, a distance between Zionism and uh, other Asian anti-colonial national movements. Whereas time flies, you know, the timeline of these all national movements is very, very strikingly similar. Uh, David Ben-Gurion and Nehru could have been just great friends of the same age group, uh, uh, of the same political life, but uh, they couldn't meet because their, their agendas, their slogans were very different. Uh, but anyway, I think that that's that will take us far from this session. If if only there, there is a question from one of the attendees. It's actually a few questions, but they're related, so I'll just quickly say them out. Um, Dr. Jangid, would you say that the Balfour Declaration, as a policy of appeasement, that failed miserably um, because of the wordings "national home for the Jews," itself is misleading? It did not include Arabs. And, did Herzl say anything about accommodation of the Arabs? Uh, the British declaration was not about appeasement. It was an imperial and a cultural oriental moment. There's a very famous letter that Arthur Walfer wrote after it. According to Arthur Walfer, the Arab people were primitive people uncivilized, uh, you know, uh, unindustrial, uh, uneducated, illiterate farmers. And the Jews were, you know, people of a great civilization and a great culture and knowledge and society. You see, the, the you know, the, listen, European Jewish, European Zionist leaders and the British policymakers were almost hand-to-hand -hand in the World War I. The first president of Israel, Chaim Weizmann, fought in the World War I for the British. He, uh, he was a physicist. So, so they were all European people, white European people. And they looked at this part of the world as backward. So I would say it was Orientalism. That's why they didn't even care about the equal rights or the political rights of the Palestinian people. For a long time, Palestinians were not even called Palestinians. They were just called Arabs. So I would say uh, there isn't an appeasement here. They, uh, they were appeasing Hitler, but they weren't appeasing anybody here. Actually, most of the uh, leaders in British Empire were thinking about how to retain this part of the world by changing the demography or whatever. So I would say it had to do with their oriental perspectives of the Arab people as primitive people. Uh, and Jewish people as more fine people, educated people, uh, who would bloom, uh, who will make the land flourish after they are given, uh, you know, permit to come here. Now, Theodor Herzl uh, was a very, very powerful intellectual, and I think he could have played a greater role, but he died very young. He wrote this pamphlet in 1896. He was in Vienna. He is the one who organized the first Zionist Congress in, um, 
in Switzerland in 1897. So the first assembly of the Zionist or the Jewish leaders to sit together and say, here is the roadmap and that's how we will get to our national claim. He died within five years of that whole Congress. Uh, he wasn't there even when the British were offering Uganda to the Zionist leaders. So he, you know, people who read him now, they go back to his temple and they said he, he was very, very open-minded person about the territory, meaning he could have worked even with Argentina. Not to say that people of Argentina were, were there, but to say that he looked at this question purely an international, political, national question. Religion had no role in it. And he wanted a very, very peaceful solution to this conflict. Uh, so he presented it as a Jewish question. That's how international war and uh, diplomacy debated it. So, I, you know, it's an if question about him because there's nothing much he did after the pamphlet and the first Congress. Um, Mira, you, want, you had a question? Yeah, yeah, I had a question. It was more like a follow-up question to what Yaju had asked. Uh, because, um, I mean, we know that, you know, there is a bit of uh, Baghdadi and Beni Israeli population in India. So since you said that uh, Nehru had that uh, leaning to, you know, he felt for the cause and uh, wanted to invite them back. Was there anything that he actively did to protect or, uh, you know, I, I don't know, protect the Jews in India? Because at the moment, I've been reading, uh, you know, here and there about how they can't even have like a cemetery of how encroachments are happening even in their cemeteries. So did he do anything at that point to help them feel that uh, they belong uh, in India and they're welcome in this land? Well, I think encroachment is a, is a, is a thing that can happen to any of us. One doesn't have to really have the Jewish or the Muslim identity for it. We just live in a very, very uh, unprotected state. Uh, Nehru didn't actually have to do anything particular for the Jewish community uh, that lived in India. I mean, in India at that time, there was a very, very small community. Uh, you know, in 1947-48, there were less than 30,000 Jews in India. So it was a very insignificant number. Uh, but they were very, very well placed in, in places like Mumbai or Kolkata. They were well-to-do communities. They had their synagogues. They had their very explicit cultural uh, ceremonies and rituals. And it's a one thing that India can uh, pat its back, that the Jews were not uh, in a way discriminated or even uh, in a way, you know, felt... Uh, negative or fear about their practices. You know, in Cochin uh, and in Kolkata and in Mumbai, you can visit a very, very lively historical uh, places of their worship and, and gatherings. So I think he uh, didn't have to do anything. I think it was the ecosystem of, ecosystem of India where all kinds of religious communities and groups could, could do what they were in a way faithful about. Uh, he did, because when Jews were getting killed in Europe, he knew that they need rescue. You know, they were getting rescued by all kinds of organizations in the world. But he wanted to, in a way, support uh, through Indian princely states more resources to bring them in. So his worry was not for the Jews uh, of India. I think his worry was for the Jews in Europe. 
Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, Yajur, we might have to, you know, may, may think of creatively taking, but I think the time is up. We are almost closing 90 minutes. I mean, thanks to all of uh, people who joined. I know Meera uh, uh, Abirami, uh, would you tell me what you do? And then we may, may close the session in a, in a two or five minutes. I would like to know who, the, who are we meeting today? Yeah, sure, Professor. I am a student at Jindal myself and I'm part of the fellowship program. You are a part of the fellowship program. Thank yeah. you. Okay, Yajur, tell me. No, you are mute. Okay, we, we have one last question that I wanted to bring in and then we will wrap up for sure. Um, and I think Vasu is also talking to you. I don't know if he wants to, uh, he's open to introducing himself. Vasu, please go ahead. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I think, sir, the question corresponds to our next session uh, more uh, profoundly, but uh, I think I'll ask for this one as well. So you might have uh, heard, uh, you must have studied about the Ben-Gurion and uh, Moshe Sherry dispute. So do you think that, uh, uh, if such a dispute would have happened in Palestinian territories, for example, let's take any any of the leaders, any two leaders in Palestinian territory, do you think the situation would have gotten worse there or it would have settled like in Israel? Because Levon affair definitely must have uh, made uh, Sherrod resign. But do you think the Palestinian in the Arab uh, states, if it would have happened, then it would have a stock a very extreme response, maybe a civil war or something like that? Thank you. Listen, uh, it's a bit hypothetical, but I'll tell you this. I think one of the biggest uh, miseries for the Palestinian people in 1948 and before and after is that they didn't have a leader. Uh, so Zionists or the Jewish people were lucky that they had remarkable, uh, you know, variety of leaders. You know, you have the Dovish and the Hawkish leaders, you have religious, you have cosmopolitan and more liberal. But the Palestinian people really did not have leadership. They were represented by the Arab Higher Committee, uh, even in the United Nations in 1947. The only remarkable leader who, who emerges in the Palestinian history is Yasser Arafat in the late 19th, uh, early 1960s. So that variety of debate isn't really a luxury that the Palestinian people had. The failure of their leaders or the failure of their uh, community heads is a, is a great setback uh, for them. Uh, okay. Yajur, please yes. have the last question. We will finish in three minutes with this very last question which had come earlier and I did not bring it. It's from Dhanya Pandey who's in the session right now. Uh, the question is, why did the Balfour Declaration not take into account the Hussein McMahon correspondence that occurred two years before? And why wasn't a clear territorial outline established during the signing of the declaration? Final question. Well, the British were known to play the double game, Dhania. So, you know, once upon a time, they, they worked with the uh, Hussein uh, McMahon, you know, that conversation is very famous. And, you know, the Jordanian... Hashemite dynasty was helped to get a state like Jordan after the uh, World War One. They really uh, wanted to work uh, with all influential leaders of the Arab as well as the Jewish, just keep them under the British uh, control. 
uh, they had this policy that they can give autonomous local uh, leverage to these leaders and then make them accept the British Empire and the imperial power on, on them, something that they did in India. So I think they could have fulfilled both, but the civil war shattered all their plans. They didn't really anticipate that very common Palestinian farmers will really turn against them and they will pick arms. Uh, the civil war went on for three years and it was impossible for the Britain to contain it. Of course, they wanted to contain it by law and order, right? By using force. They did everything and they couldn't really stop it. So then they said, you know, we, we need to, in a way, work with both. But I would say that they, they played the game of uh, playing with the both. So it was, it was clearly double game. They had another plan with the French, you know, the Sykes-Picot Agreement of the 1916. So it was just an imperial mess, I would say. Uh, that people had to deal with. Wow, we've covered a lot of territory today. Yeah, Dr. I felt like I'm in a classroom of general. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. well, thank, thank you, you for the session. And also thanks to all the people who have joined us in the in this session and for the, all the great questions. We will continue our exploration of Israel with Dr. Jangi next week, same day, same time. You can find the link to register for the next session, Israel-Arab and Israel-Palestine conflict in the chat window below or on our website, argumentativeindians.com. And, and for more engaging and informative videos, please do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Namaskar. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. We hope you liked this episode where we discussed the making of the State of Israel. Stay tuned for the next episode in this threefold series where we will be discussing the Israel-Arab and the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Signing off, Argumentative Indians.